You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the transit zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. You know, I don't know what I'd be doing these days during these COVID lockdowns without my bird friends in the backyard and the surrounding trees. Fortunately, I live in a very leafy suburb. We have many species here, both large and small. Even a predatory white-faced heron goes after our goldfish in the pond up the back. Hopspire to try his luck and sometimes has success. We have a few resident eastern spinebills here flitting about. It's a very pretty bird with a penetrating pinging call that belies its tiny size. Visiting striated thornbills as well with their softer whirring calls. The ever-present querulous wattlebirds who think they own the joint with their grating calls warning off other nectar feeders. But the real songsters, of course, are our resident magpies and the butcher birds as well. As dawn breaks here, the magpies greeted with full-throated caroling and a couple of butcher birds exchange across their territory a clear, resonant seven-note song. The magpie is a favourite bird for many Australians. Others have only a bad word for this iconic species. And why? Well, the attacks. And apparently in some areas, magpie attacks have increased because of our COVID face masks. In this edition of The Transit Zone, I want to find out much more about the Australian magpie and those attacks, and in passing their cousins, the butcher birds, another favourite of mine. Urban ecologist Professor Daryl Jones from Griffith University in Brisbane is with us. Daryl, welcome to The Zone. How are you, Peter? Really well, and I must say I did wake up again this morning and there were the Maggies up the back. There's nothing quite like that sound. A lot of Australians, when they're away, perhaps think about the kookaburras. They just seem to be... Fewer kookaburras about these days, certainly in the suburbs. You hear them when you go out bush more, but I don't hear any cookers anymore, but I certainly hear the magpies. And to me, they're more Australian in some ways than the kookaburras. You mentioned that they're one of the Australia's favourite birds. That's because of that beautiful caroling sound. And that, and that's that's big at the moment because so we're in spring at the moment. So the birds are out there being very territorial, the maggies, and they're saying that, that gorgeous call, it's a complicated call. If we could translate it into English, it wouldn't be a pleasant message. It would be, bugger off, we're here, we're strong, we're fit, don't come anywhere near us or we'll beat the crap out of you or something along those lines. And magpies are extraordinary for many reasons, but one of them is that they're territorial every single day of the year. It's more intense now in the breeding season, but they patrol their boundaries, sing that challenge to any other magpies every day of the year, which is why there's such a a feature of mornings anywhere. Well, Daryl, I want to talk in more detail about their singing later because I'm picking up maggies, for example, sitting all by themselves in a branch, just singing what I think of as... Magpie jazz to themselves, but we'll come back to the singing later. Let's talk about the attacks. I've heard you talking about attacks of magpies in this particular lockdown period, and we know that they're able to recognise human faces and get to know their crew in the human tribe who live around them and discriminate between various humans. But apparently our face marks are skewing that process. Is that right? Well, that's absolutely right. So just like us, we use the features of other people's faces, the, just the structure of our, of our face to recognise individuals. So no matter what the different clothes that we might wear, we can always, the face doesn't change. And that's what the Maggies are doing. We've, we've shown that that's the case. Now, that really matters because 
and I, it needs to be said, of the very small proportion of magpies that actually attack people, which is only about 10% of all magpies, of those ones, the ones that attack pedestrians usually are only attacking a single person or sometimes a, a couple of people. And those people live in the vicinity of where the magpies live in their tiny little territory. So they know the 20 or 30 people that live there really intimately. And if something happens that the magpies, for reasons known only to the magpies, interpret our behaviour in such a way that it's a threat to the chicks, then they will say, oh, I'm going to keep that person away from my nest. And that's the swooping and all that, those attacks, uh, that male, it's always a male, that male doing his job very carefully and keeping what he regards as a threat away. Back to the masks, if you can't actually see the person's face properly, you can't distinguish between them. And the incidents, which was mostly in Melbourne, came really from, from last year because... Unfortunately, poor old Melbourneites were the only ones locked down during spring. Everybody else wasn't that way, so it's not the case this year. There was a lot of reports coming out of Melbourne where instead of the single person that was the usual victim, the magpie was attacking pretty much indiscriminately. And it's possible to think that that, that bird was simply saying, where's this, this nasty predator guy that I've got to keep an eye on? Everybody looks the same because of the masks. I'll have to attack everybody and just make sure that he's not amongst them. That's the logic. A little bit hard to prove, but it seems to make sense. And it's certainly turning up again this year, that phenomenon. You're talking about facial recognition and quite fine grain facial recognition if they can pick up up to 30 people. I'll ask you in a moment about whether they pass this on and teach their babies who the good people and the not so good people in their territory are. But what do we know from research about how they actually pull that facial recognition off? It's very sophisticated. It's, it's literally like the facial recognition software because nobody's been able to work out which bit. It's the whole package. It's, you know, it's the eyes, where the nose is, where the mouth is, all the, the shape of the face. They're doing exactly what we do. When we do visual recognition of people, they are doing the same thing. And if you disrupt that dramatically, like putting a whole piece of cloth across half your face, it's much harder to do. And there's a lot of theories about whether it's the, what's clothes or what colour hats people wear. It's none of those things. They can recognise us no matter what clothes we wear. So it's very much the facial thing. So we've done a lot of research like that. We, we actually at one stage made masks that looked like other people and swapped them around and that, that worked. So they, they know us by our faces and they distinguish between us very carefully. And they're doing this often from either their perch and near the nest or flying too. I guess they can do it while they're flying. The really important thing, Peter, to remember is that the usual pair of magpies lives in one patch for life. Once they find a mate and settle down, it's just a tiny area and they basically never leave it. People that live in that small area, you know, it might be a dozen houses or so, in a typical good magpie territory, which just has to have a lot of nice grass, nice lawn and a few trees, they know all those people and they see the kids growing up. The magpies live for 20 years or so. They can see, you know, children grow up and, and develop. They know all those people very much. So, but they don't know anybody else. And people, strangers, they won't recognise and they won't react to them. But when you think about the magpies that get all the publicity every year, they are often magpies that are in places that are not like that. They're in schoolyards or busy car parks or an inner city park where hundreds of people recreate. Now, in those situations, there's no way that the birds can remember everybody. There's just, it's just not possible. So they're the ones which attack you know, indiscriminately among the people that are there. And so it's very different. Those ones get all the publicity, but they're actually fairly rare. Most magpies live in this tiny little 
patch in the suburbs and don't even look sideways at anybody. They'll recognise all the people in their, in their patch. I must say, Daryl, I have never, ever been attacked by a magpie. In oh. the old days, in the old days, I grew up in Brisbane, your part of the world as well, and masked lapwings used to attack me when I was yeah. down near the university. I lived in St. Lucian near the university. and They used to have a go at me on my bike, but I've never been attacked by a magpie ever. My wife and I believe in, <laughs> this is just us, we believe in being respectful. And I always say good morning to them if they're in a tree just outside our front yard. My wife's got this little vocal phrase she does with them, which is sort of probably a rough, human, heavily accented version of magpie. And they respond to that in Interestingly, when mm. you do a bit, a bit of cod mad pie talk to them. Uh, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And let me tell you, you're absolutely not alone in having a chat with the local Maggies. That's, that's for sure. There's no doubt about it. They are, they are visual and auditory animals. They very much respond to calls. I, I have a bit of fun myself trying to mimic them when they are you know, doing a call. I'm sure they think it's terrible and they recognise that it's a stupid human having a terrible go at trying to sound like them and there's no way we can replicate that but you know that's that's a, a sound sensible thing even if it's not working as such as in taming the birds it makes you feel good so that's all fine and they don't attack you and they seem to feel like they're your friends and in fact we had another example miles from home over in western australia and we'll park somewhere and there was a, a magpie not far away from us just by himself my wife did the uh, the magpie thing, did the call, and it just flew straight over and landed on the on the side <laughs> mirror beside us. So it responded. There was definitely yeah. a response there. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and you've got to remember also that the magpie is one of those species that has moved into the towns and cities and suburbs with us with spectacular success. I mean, we have made magpie heaven for them. It's absolutely perfect. You know, before Europeans arrived, um, there was no lawns, you know, as such. No concentrated places where they could live in a small, tiny area. It was all fairly dry, long grass that never got mowed, all that sort of thing. And that's still the case in the bush. That's how they are. And those bagpies are absolutely not as, as friendly. You can't get anywhere near them, you know, the ones in the bush, way out in the bush. The ones that see people all the time become quickly habituated to humans and they soon work out they can train us very, very effectively to provide food and all that sort of stuff. And they've got us completely under their thumbs because they know exactly how to manipulate our um, sense of what we'd like to do. And, and it's, it's a hard person who can't respond to a magpie standing a metre away looking at you <laughs> saying, do you need all that sausage? You know. <laughs> Let's talk about the magpie and their relations, the family. It's not only the magpies. Well, it's really part of the butcher bird gang, I suppose. But I have the Karawongs come in here in big flocks too. They're sort of related in a broad way as well. Can we just place them now? I know the taxonomy of birds is a very fraught area and it keeps shifting. If you go back to old bird guides, you find different things for different families. Let's place them in their family now under current taxonomy. Who are they, these magpies? The Australian magpie is nothing like, not even related in any way to the European magpie, even though that's where the name comes from. Pie just means pied, just means black and white. So they lazily called them magpies when they arrived. We probably could have had a fantastic indigenous name, but it's too late for that now. It has been realised by very sophisticated analyses that the magpie, the Australian magpie, is one of the butcher birds. It's the big butcher bird. 
which is all the other ones that people will be familiar with, the grey and the pied most especially, which are everywhere the magpies are. And the black? Black is the North Queensland one. Yes, good to mention that one. That's not really that known to most people who live in southern Australia, but there is another one. It doesn't sound anything like a butcher bird, extraordinarily. It's, it's a, sounds more like a crow. And I mentioned that as well because this group, the Cractisidae is the name of the family, its next relatives would be the currawongs. That's They're fairly close. They're in the same broad, broad, broad group as the crows. So they're more like a crow, but there's a long distance between the crows and the magpies. This group, the Cracticidae, the butcher birds and the magpie, they're pretty much an Australian speciality. They don't occur anywhere else. They have ventured up just into southern Papua New Guinea. They're in Fiji, but I think they probably were introduced there. But that's it. They're an Australian speciality. Let's talk about morphology. And first, before we talk about plumage, I want to talk about the magpies of flyer. I've always admired the actual build of the magpie. It's quite a solid bird. It's quite a big bird. But boy, they're agile in the air, aren't they? They've got quite a broad wing, but they can really move around in the air. Absolutely. And that's probably related to the extent to which they have to be territorial. I mentioned that earlier. Every single day they're out patrolling their boundary. And if they need to, they will physically defend the boundary from a, from a passing trespasser, another magpie that's trying to come onto their land. And there's lots of fights over the boundaries about the territory. And they do, that goes on all year. Very unusual. In fact, the magpie is among the only species in the world which maintains its territorial behaviour all the time. That's, it's a tough gig because you've got to be on the lookout, you've got to be singing, you've got to be ready to fight every day. Now, that's usually too exhausting for most birds. Their territoriality, which is singing to, to set up a territory, attract a mate and then breed... It all just falls in a heap after the chicks are finished and they all go, that's enough of that. We'll have to wait and have a big rest until next year. But the magpies don't. They stay territorial all year round. And I'm pretty sure that that aerial ability is all about that. They do lots of dogfights above the ground, trying to say, no, you've come too far into my territory. You keep out. All that sort of stuff's going on all the time. I've seen a group of magpies, not in Melbourne or in Victoria, but over in West Australia again, actually. I've seen a group of magpies see off a sea eagle very effectively. Right. Okay. Yes. And that was a group all having a go. That's right. Swooping. A swooping at the sea eagle. Absolutely. Well, they swoop at anything that they think may be a threat. And sometimes that is a human. Usually it's the much more familiar things like goannas or snakes or cats or whatever might be a threat, especially when there's chicks in the nest. I guess we should distinguish between territoriality, which is always just simply patrolling the boundaries of your patch and keeping other members of your species away. So territoriality has got nothing to do with the brood defence or chick defence when they swoop humans or other predators. That's a different thing altogether. There's nothing to do with territoriality in their attacks of humans. Now, we all know that nectar feeders are a very prominent grouping amongst Australian birds. We've got a lot of honey eaters, a lot of nectar feeders, but the magpie isn't it. It's a very different sort of bird and mm. it's a ground feeder. It's got this solid wedge-shaped beak, which we can go on and talk about its feeding habits now. So it's evolved to be a ground feeder. It doesn't feed on nectar at all. How do you perceive that evolution taking place? Where does it fit in the niche of birds generally? Well, it's a large insectivore primarily, but it specialises. It's one of the few Australian birds to specialise on subterranean invertebrates, worms and grubs effectively. 
And the other butcher birds don't do this. I mean, they do do a bit of feeding on the ground, but they don't do what magpies do. It's a very thrush-like thing. If you've ever seen blackbirds do this, blackbirds do it as well. So you'll see the magpie walking along on the grass on, on a nice sward of lush lawn, and then they'll bend their head one way and then the other way and then back again and then stab that dagger-like beak straight down into the ground and if they're successful, pull out a wriggling worm or a beetle larvae. That sideways bending of the head is all about listening. They are listening for their lunch. They are hearing the noises made by a worm. Imagine this. What sort of noise does a worm make slithering through the dirt, you know, six centimetres below the surface? But they can hear that. They sort of triangulate on where the sound's coming from, plunge that beak. So that beak is very carefully designed for that purpose. And that's a huge difference between all the other butcher birds. All the other butcher birds have a hook on the end of their beak, which it wouldn't work if the magpie had that. They couldn't plunge it down straight into the ground. They're much more predatory, the butcher birds. They will go for frogs and lizards and you know even small snakes and grasshoppers and all that sort of stuff. The magpies do to a certain extent, but they're primarily a specialist at the worms and grubs on the ground. What's the time spent feeding versus what we might loosely as humans call recreation for magpies? They can usually get all their sustenance in the first hour and a half of the day and then about the last hour of the day as well. One of the controversial things that I've been studying for a long time is bird feeding. Everybody can tell you a story about magpies and bird feeding. The magpie is the favourite bird for people to feed in Australia and you will be inundated with calls about people saying... Yes, our magpies bring their chicks every year to meet, meet us because we've been feeding them for years and, and there's a genuine relationship built up between the people and the local family of magpies. That's, that's definitely something going on. In the suburban environment, they've got everything they need. It's, it's all laid out for them. That's why they don't need a very big territory compared to in the bush. It's around about an hour and a half's work in the morning and about an hour in the, in the late afternoon. And the rest of the day up to whatever they want to do. And that's when they often go and visit people's feeders. And I've, I've been re researching this myself. It's a controversial topic in Australia. But most people who like to feed birds feed magpies in Australia, and they feed them bits of mince and chopped heart and cheese and all sorts of things. When they turn up at your feeder, they've already filled up for the day. They've, this is a snack. It's not they don't need that food, but they don't mind it. And it is a good way to um, interact with the humans and get them on side and, tr and train them a bit more so that they've got a, you've got a bit more food available if you need it. But the suburbs in a normal city are so perfect for magpies, it's almost hard to believe how they survived without humans, at least Europeans building lawns. The density of magpies in the city is about five times what it is in the bush, you know, where it's dry and it's just harder to find all those grubs and things. Their range is quite extraordinary, Daryl, isn't it? If you look at the map, it's only those really harsh deserts sort of in the centre of Australia. And I certainly didn't see any up on Cape York Peninsula, up in the tropics there. Though I did hear a, a butcher bird singing in the night in the rainforest right up near oh. uh, Cape York Peninsula. You know how they sometimes sing at night or certainly yeah. during the dark times? We heard yeah. a butcher bird up there. I didn't ever see it, undoubtedly, a butcher bird, but certainly no Maggie's up there in the tropics. So their range is quite extensive, isn't it? It is very extensive. If you looked at the distribution maps in the bird books, it seems to suggest that they're almost everywhere, as you, as you said, apart from the extreme north and the, the treeless deserts, the true desert parts. That's pretty true. But they also don't usually occur in the thick forested country. 
you know, a solid forest. It doesn't have to be rainforest. They're not in rainforest anywhere. And, but they're not even also in the thick, solid, true forests of Victoria or New South Wales or, or in the ranges. Now, they like the open country, much more open, much more scattered. And in fact, so there's another reason why they have prospered, because we've opened up the country. We've got wide open spaces, lots of places for them to forage, and a scattering of trees that they could put a nest in, sit in the top of and, and gaze out over their territory in the open environment that we've made for ourselves, and they have benefited from that structure as well. One of the things we do when we're travelling around Australia, as we love doing, is spotting magpies and looking at the different plumages. And, of course, we've got the whitebacks here. And even amongst the whitebacks, you get different extents of white on the back of the male. And around Australia, we get everything, just a tiny bit of white. They do vary, and I understand that earlier on they were seen as separate species. They're all magpies. What causes that difference in plumage? How does that work within the evolutionary process? It's a little bit hard to to know exactly how that is. I've, I've actually had a colleague, Jane Hughes, Professor Jane Hughes at Griffith University, who's spent her life trying to answer that very question. Uh, and she, I don't think she's come up with a definitive answer yet. Um, there seems to be some suggestion that the more black is better in certain um, climatic areas and more white is better in other in certain circumstances. But other data that she's got suggests that the black and the white is used as a signal among the different birds and a signal to other magpies to take notice or watch out or here I am or those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's a little bit tricky to know. It's very fixed genetically. There's boundaries where the whitebacks stop and the blackbacks start and all that sort of thing. And they're fairly strict and there's a little bit of breeding along the edges, cross-fertilisation if you like, but mostly those areas of Australia where one form is found and the other form is not found are pretty stable. They don't change very much. The male and the females look different. You can pick a male from a female very easily with magpies. Absolutely. So in every single case, no matter what version of magpie plumage you've got, the male is always black and white. There's no gradation pretty much, especially along the back or the nape, which is the back of the neck. And if it grades from black to white and has a grey section through it, it's almost always the female. You can get yourself into a little bit of trouble because the juveniles often look more like females than the males do. But most of the time you can tell whether you've got a male or a female. The male is the one primarily responsible for territorial defence leads the singing and also keeps the predators away. We've all seen magpie mum and dad and baby out on the nature strip with that very noisy, very insistent baby going, ah, ah, with their mouth open and they keep popping the worms and the, and the larvae into the young magpie. But I'm intrigued to know whether there's a learning process going on with the young magpie. Is there a point, a crossover period, where they start listening themselves and start shoving that beak into the ground. Is there an educational process for the chick? There is very much, Peter. There's an apprenticeship, you could call it, where as soon as the chicks leave the nest, and that, and as soon as the, that's another point, point to make, as soon as the chicks leave the nest, the swooping goes away. There's no more anything like that. They, they abandon that area altogether, and then they spend the rest of their time away from the nest tree, and most of the day walking around on the ground and so the chicks are watching mum and dad how they forage and it can be an extensive period it can be sort of four five six months of apprenticeship learning how to find the food and also being instructed on what's a predator and where to sleep safely for the night and what to avoid and all those usual things which a good parent should pass on to their chicks almost everywhere as soon as the chicks reach their adulthood their their independence 
They are given the boot. They are told to go off and make a place of your own now, youngsters. It's time for mum and dad to have a bit of a rest before next breeding season. And as a result of that, and as a result of the pretty much any good territories, just back-to-back -back territories, those young magpies which have left home, they can't stay anywhere near home. They are vigorously requested to take their leave and not come back, please. So they have to leave and go often great distances. And so there's a traumatic period of time just after the fledging period when they've, left, when they've left home where there's a lot of juvenile magpies who've been booted out. They have no idea what's going on, no parents to guide them. They gather up into big groups, which are called tribes. And this is the you know black T-shirt wearing, hanging around the mall kind of situation where they have no idea what's going on making the best of life as they possibly can. But in the process, learning a few life skills, finding a mate, and then going off and seeing if they can find a territory of their own, which is a tough gig when you're, when you're just a, a young, naive bird with not many skills and not much knowledge. So there's a whole lot of social stuff going on there. Do you think, Daryl, they actually pick up additional life skills from smarter parents or more adept parents? Can some be better equipped than others? Oh, there's no doubt about that at all. Absolutely. We've looked at this in quite a bit of detail and some parents are, well, like humans, pretty useless, you know. <laughs> some parents, magpies, feed them only artificial food from the, from the meat stations which are available from Mrs Smith's tray up the, up the road. And they teach them how to find natural food anyway. All those kinds of things happen. But most of the time, and it's, it should say this, they're a very egalitarian when it comes to childcare. The males and the females, are, most of the time, it's about 50-50 of how much work they do to bring food for the chicks. The only time when that's not the case is if you've got a completely crazed male who's now convinced that every human is apt to kill his chicks and spends all their time swooping. They're not a good mate to choose if you get a, get a choice for the females. But uh, most of the time, it's a very equal load. Darrell, we were staying in a, an old farmhouse uh, in the Grampians, beautiful place, high set looking down a few acres and there are a lot of birds there, but particularly a group of magpies and it seems to be perhaps an exception to what you were just saying. There were about 10 in the group as we were observing them and they were distributed in trees, some ground feeding. A couple of things. One, there did seem to be a posted scout whose job seemed to be just to sit up in a tree mm. and watch out while the others, and then they'd fly up to him and, and he would be able to come down and someone else was put on scout duty. But there was quite a big group and they hadn't banished some of the young ones from the previous year. Now, that's a very good point, Peter, because it's, I should have mentioned this earlier. There's a line about a third of the way up New South Wales and across the whole continent where above the line, the magpies only occur in pairs or the chicks from the most recent breeding season but most of the time there's just the pair. Below that line, which is all of Victoria, southern bit of South Australia and, and Western Australia and the bottom of Western Australia, the magpies in those areas form much larger groups and they can be up to 20, 25 sometimes, which include sometimes two lots of chicks who haven't left home and they stay around. They do a little bit of assistance with raising the next lot of chicks. In those cases, they have the opportunity to learn much more than they can from the just, the, like the, the magpies in the northern parts of that distribution don't get that opportunity because they're simply not there. But with the magpies, which stay for a couple of seasons sometimes with mum and dad and all the other siblings that they've got, they can learn a lot. And there's been some wonderful research done in Western Australia on the ability to solve 
problems. I mean, they actually give wild magpies simple problems to solve, where to find food in a, a tray that's got different colours, things hidden beside, you know, like really simple little projects for them to do and learn. They've shown very clearly that the size of the group means that you're more likely to solve those problems more quickly. So being in the large groups, they're smarter birds. And I hate to admit that as from Queensland, Victorian birds are probably smarter than the Queensland ones, but don't spread that around. How do these newly emerging fledglings, the new magpies, actually establish a new territory? Everywhere we go, there seem to be magpies. How do they muscle in and establish a new territory? Are there, Daryl, such things as magpie losers? I've got this image in my mind. I think I've seen it in the magpie book somewhere with a magpie sitting facing a tree, isolated. Are there isolates and are there losers? Yes, there are definitely. My colleague who I've mentioned already, Jane Hughes, has tried to study this. But it's so hard because you, you banned all these birds and then they just vanish into the wherever. We don't know where they go. So that's been hard to work out. Everywhere there are magpies, there will be a no, a no man's land, if you like, a pretty crappy area that's not very good. Might be an industrial site or you know a place where there's just not much there. And no self-respecting magpie pair would actually set up a place there. And sometimes those the losers, the ones that haven't been able to find a mate, perhaps injured ones or the ones that just can't make it, and all the new newly arrived fledglings who are looking for a spot in the world, they gravitate to those types of places and they hang out in, in gangs and whinge about their parents and life in general, I'd imagine. That's where those some of the birds will find pairs, but quite a lot never find pairs and they remain unpaired, unterritoried and eke out an existence sort of scavenging as best they can. But the process of finding a, a territory or achieving a territory is really hard. Eventually the magpies have to die. I mean, they don't live forever. If you bide your time and you know what you're looking for, you can just hang around. And at some stage, a magpie will be run over by a car, die of old age, taken by a snake, whatever. It, they can't live forever. And so they'll there will be opportunities arrive for the lucky few that just happen to be in the right place at the right time. By attrition. By attrition, pretty much, yeah. I mentioned the scout. It looked to us, Daryl, very much as if there were scouts being posted. Do they do that? And more importantly, more intriguingly for me is, how does Chief Magpie, the male, tell perhaps a younger magpie, go and sit in that tree for a while? How do they communicate? They communicate vocally. This is an area we honestly don't know very much about at all. Magpies are among the most playful, like technically playful. They spend a lot of time as youngsters playing, even with playing with adults. And playing, wherever you see playing in the natural world, that's learning fast. That's all about developing skills and working out social arrangements and who's who in the, in the zoo and where the, what the hierarchy's like and who you take notice of and who's the boss and who you can beat up. That sort of stuff goes on all the time. Magpies play for a long time of their earlier life, so they're learning fast the whole time. But those difficult, complicated processes of, of working out how all that sort of stuff works is something we simply don't know very well at all. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. We're talking magpies with urban ecologist Professor Daryl Jones. Let's talk about magpie singing, Daryl, because this is probably the aspect of the magpie, apart from seeing them around and doing things, it's the singing that we're also aware of. This is quite a, 
an outstanding evolutionary feature, isn't it, the singing? It's quite complex and sophisticated. And the more you listen to magpies, the more you realise how intricate their singing actually is. Do we have any idea to start this part of our conversation about how their caroling, their singing actually evolved and for what reason? We do know a fair bit about this. It's, it's obviously intrigued scientists as well as ordinary people for a long time. It's such an iconic part of their process. Yeah, I think I can safely say that it is, if it's not the most, it is absolutely one of the most sophisticated forms of vocalisation of any animal in the world, the magpie carol. That early morning, sometimes with lots of males, lots of birds involved, but often just a single bird caroling for an extensive amount of time, that's made up of very strict syntax, phrases of, of different calls, all put together in a certain way. Each male has his own signature call. It's sometimes like their father's, but they often don't get to hear their father's call very much. There's a little bit of that, but by the time many of them have left home, it won't be the case with the southern, more social birds, but sometimes they don't get to hear that very early and crystallise in their own mind about it. But it's very sophisticated. And although it sounds just like a whole lot of quadly, oodly, oddly, oddly, that's been broken down in great technical detail and... Every magpie has a different call and they do the same one every day with sometimes sort of repeated embellishments or just an extended version. But if you know, and this has been studied, if you know what the magpies in this location sing, it won't be the case on the, in the next suburb or the next, next valley. Yes, among the most sophisticated and accomplished forms of vocalisation of any animal ever been studied. Is there such a thing as a good night call from magpies? We've noticed that come roosting time, there seems to be a magpie that flies through and around and uses a different call altogether. Is that part of their repertoire? Well, I don't know exactly whether this is what you're talking about, but there has been a fairly recently discovered phenomenon, not just among magpies, but it relates to magpies, where the female and the male may actually be up to a bit of hanky-panky on the side, and they can have develop a completely different call. It's still a magpie call, but it's not like any of the other calls. And it seems to be, hey, if you're interested for a little quick twist out the back, I'm available. They seem to be so stuck in their territories that, as it's clinically called, extra pair copulations don't seem to be ever possible. But it's been discovered that these things happen in the dark. And so... Possibly that's what you're, what you're talking about there. Oh, it's a little booty call, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's been found that around about 32% of all the chicks were fathered by not the father who's in there. And, and so it was a big, big mystery. Well, when on earth did this happen? When, you know, when did they have opportunity? Because they're so homebound and stay within the territory that it seems an impossibility that they'd ever get the chance to do anything like that. But now they do it in the dark of night. I know it's just my imagination, but when I see a single magpie, and I've seen this often, sitting in a tree, singing quietly, not singing yeah. out, but singing almost almost a murmuring type of singing. I've always imagined that was just improvising. That's why I call it jazz. And I've heard others use a sort of jazz-like approach to their singing, and it doesn't seem to be about territory necessarily. So that single magpie I'm hearing doing a soft, quiet singing. What's that? That's called subsong. It's just for the individual. It's not loud so that anybody else can hear it. It's often done by a bird by themselves, deliberately away from the group. And it just seems to be a way that they practice what is a very sophisticated song. You do need to practice 
And you've got to get it right. If you, For some reason, if you get your signature carol repertoire wrong, the local birds will go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like Jack. Maybe there's somebody else there and we'll, ch- we'll check out what's going on. Common for birds that have complicated calls. You often hear it in butcher birds as well, same group, you know, and, and you'll see them and hear them. They're just practicing the repertoire. Now, where, did, where does that second bit come? Oh, just in the side. And they, and they have to do it, it seems, they have to do it vocally and hear themselves call rather than just think it in their brain, which makes plenty of sense. It's just, you know, it's an opera singer practicing by themselves in the, in the dressing room, if you like. Over in Western Australia in Cape Range National Park, we've often seen a butcher bird, in fact, sitting on top of our troopie, calling to its mate across the heath. And they use the same song. One Mm. might be only seven notes. And notes, by the way, and this intrigues me as well, that you could write down in Western music form very, very easily. Perhaps seven notes, beautiful. And once you've heard it once, you can repeat it so easily yourself. And then the mate responds. But I've also seen in that same national park on near the Ningaloo Reef, I've seen a group of five or six butcher birds in a tree all doing this together. What's the difference between those two processes? I'm not entirely sure. I had a music teacher do a PhD. She retired from from her work as a school teacher and got in and, and and she was a very musical person and a very mathematically minded person and she came and looked at the songs of grey butcher birds in Brisbane and she found exactly what you're describing there and that every group it was it was very different to the magpies it's a simpler version that that even humans can tell apart much more pure notes much more musical as you like and she was able to notate it in exactly a musical fashion but she found that you could only go uh, you know, uh, 200 metres and the next set of butcher birds would have that slightly different tune. And she mapped this, how it was made up of different elements all around the place. So I guess it's the same thing that we've been talking about with the magpies. This is a very vocally orientated bird whose behaviours are strongly associated with calls and communicating to the members of their own group as well as the members of their species beyond their territory in a very clear, loud fashion. Something's going on there. There's a level of communication that we can only guess at, but it's very profound, no doubt about it. One thing we did notice, Daryl, as we moved around, we heard distinctly different melodies from different butcher birds and were able to repeat those notes to each other. They're very distinctive. Let's move to mimicry because we know that butcher birds can produce all sorts of different sounds. Of course, the lyrebird gets all the publicity, doesn't it? The recent Taronga Zoo one with the crying baby is a very good example of that. And we've seen lyrebirds, for example, pass sounds down the generations. But butcher birds and even magpies are very good mimics as well. That says to me that they've got really sophisticated vocal apparatus, if you like. How do scientists like you see mimicry as part of birds' behaviour? Is there an adaptive advantage for being good mimics for birds? 
without any doubt at all. These birds that we're describing, clearly their, their behaviour and the way they interact with each other is very strongly vocal. At least with the magpies and the butcher birds that we've been talking about, mimicry isn't a part of their vocal repertoire, but they are all good mimics. Every individual magpie is capable of hearing a sound and mimicking it back, but they don't include that in their normal behaviour. So unlike the lyrebirds, which literally do, they hear a chainsaw or a baby crying or whatever it might be, they can then incorporate that into their broadcast call and it means something to another lyrebird. It seems to be with the magpies and the butcher birds that that's just an indication of just how good they are at hearing noises and even replicating noises but they don't use it in their own calls. I think it's just a if you're very good at hearing in a very detailed way much more than humans could it shows your your abilities and your vocal acuity if you like but it's they don't use it in their own calls. And you've talked, Errol, about a magpie being able to hear a worm moving through the soil. So the oral and the oral, if you like, to use the yep. general term, go together, don't they? Absolutely. You can't be a brilliant singer if you're not a very good listener. Every um, opera singer would, have to, would, would agree with that. You know, you've got to be able to hear all those nuances, the little differences, and be able to replicate them in your own capacity. You've probably heard those recordings of butcher birds who do more a cascade of mimicry. They'll do other birds, they'll do mobile phones, they'll just do it in a, an incredible montage, a cascade of sounds, which is very different from the lyrebird. What's that all about, do you believe? No, well, that, that has been studied, uh, and that's for, for butcher birds, that is very much the sub-song. It's almost like I can build up my vocal abilities, my musculature, if you like, as a singer, if I can just listen to all those noises, cascade them out and practice using those, it, it makes, it's like training. Because again, they don't actually use it in their proper song. You know, they're proving to themselves and to everybody else. I mean, in the way that it's been described that I've read, it just seems to be a, a form of training. They can hear different things. They can, it's like vocal exercises before the actual songs that when you go on stage, the exercises that somebody who sings practices isn't anything like their actual song when they perform. And I think that's the way that that's understood in, uh, in Butcher Birds. To finish off our conversation, we've alluded to how clever, how smart the magpie is, both cognitively and certainly physically, a very adept bird out in the world, flies well, socialises well. You've also alluded to some of the research that you've encountered within your centre and your colleagues, but it's pretty tough looking at magpies out in the wild. There do seem to be some very opaque areas about how they operate in the world. And when we talk about a bird being smart, I'm wondering what measure are we using and how we actually measure smartness in a bird? Are there big challenges for researchers in this area? Absolutely. This is a very difficult area, and it's one I've been trying to be involved in with myself. So what does smart mean? I mean, really, and a, smart really means can you survive adequately, learn quickly, adapt to your environment, all those sorts of things. So how we as humans a totally different species with a completely different modality of our, our, how we work. I mean, I think of it, I think of it like the, you know, taking my dog for a walk. Dogs live in, a, in an olfactory world. They don't see that much or, or anything like that. They smell the world, and yet we are completely unable to do that. And I think it's the same with birds and their song. This is so important to them, 
that they, they have to practice and, and understand and build up those that training all the time. So how do you how do you measure adequately what intelligence is? It's a real trick. There is now a set of basic tools that you can use this way a simple little methods with which you can get you train the birds to or whatever animal you're dealing with to do a certain type of thing and then put that on a how quickly did they learn a a skill and did they pass it on to any other birds and all those sorts of things there's some now some rudimentary similar types of tests which you can apply to a whole lot of different animals this is especially the case with tool using with birds that use tools and there's not that many of them they give them a certain set of tasks and how quickly do they learn how to use them and pass them on. I'm agreeing with you entirely. How we measure adequately intelligence in other species is a, is a problematic area. But there's, there's, some, there's some good ways that it's happening. You know, Daryl, I think we're pretty lucky as Australians having this iconic bird nearby in our suburbs all around the place. I love them. I think you love them too, don't you? I absolutely do, yes. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and the magpies right here in the Transit Zone, Daryl. Thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. Our guest this time in the Transit Zone, urban ecologist Professor Daryl Jones from Griffith University in Brisbane. If you'd like to dig deeper into the details of the Australian magpie, I have some useful links in the on-screen text for this podcast. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. Your comments, questions, ideas for podcast episodes, always welcome. And I am planning some other wildlife and nature episodes of Transit Zone, including wildlife photography. So let us know what takes your fancy. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.